my message today will draw us nearer to the cross and the Christ of the cross. I think most of you know by now that I'm an Old Testament man, and yes, we will be in the Old Testament today. There are actually over 700 prophecies in the Old Testament that foretell the coming of the Savior. They tell us where the Savior would be born, and they tell us where he would grow up, and they tell us what his ministry would look like. They show us how he would teach the crowds using parables, and how he would heal the sick, and even raise the dead, how he would care for the poor and the hurting. And we even see glimpses of the cross. But if there's one passage that brings the cross into focus and lets us see the reality of the cross and the suffering of the cross and the meaning of the cross... It's Isaiah chapter 53. 700 years before Jesus ever walked the earth, God gave Isaiah a picture of the Savior. His life, his ministry, and his death. We see the cross. But more than that, we see his work on the cross. The cross was cruel, and the cross was harsh. But we also see God's love in the cross. We see God reaching out to save sinners like you and me. So I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of Isaiah, chapter 23. And together, I want us to uh, see the cross through Isaiah's eyes. What did I say the wrong chapter? Oh, dear. 53. Isaiah 53. That's why I have a wife uh, to cue me from the front row. I do want to give you a a word of warning. Um, Some of what we'll be studying today may be too graphic and intense for little ones. Um, The crucifixion was cruel and it was meant to be cruel. And I don't want to overemphasize the brutality of the cross, but I also want to be faithful to what God wants to teach us through this passage of Scripture. So I would ask you to bear that in mind. And I'll begin with a little bit of background. Uh, You may know Isaiah's story. Isaiah uh, carried out his ministry over 40 years, and the kingdom was still divided. So you had a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And Isaiah lived and prophesied in the southern kingdom. And these were very turbulent times. The new bully on the block was the Assyrians. The Assyrian Empire was on the rise. And so the people were gripped by fear. And it was also a time for spiritual Drift and empty worship. And Isaiah confronts all of these sins and and he judges God's people 
for their sins. But his message of judgment is mixed with hope and promise. And the final chapters of Isaiah give us four songs. And these songs picture Jesus as God's servant, a kingly messenger, a kingly envoy who would come and willingly and perfectly fulfill the king's work. And that's the work of salvation. And we find the fourth song here in Isaiah 53. And this song shows us the life and work of Jesus. And it also shows us the horror and the beauty of the cross. And I want to break this down into four parts. And the first thing I want us to see is the coming of Christ. The coming of Christ. And that's in verses 1, 2, and 3. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of a dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. It's interesting to me how Isaiah begins with a question. Who has believed? After all that. God has said and revealed about the Savior, will the people of God recognize him? Will they embrace him? And Isaiah's answer is no. But why? Why will he be unrecognizable to so many? It's because of his humility. Look at what Isaiah says. He's like an ordinary plant. Springing up out of the ground. There's nothing beautiful about his appearance. There's nothing majestic. There's nothing that attracts our eyes. And isn't that exactly what the New Testament tells us? We know the nativity story, right? He was born in a stable. And his first crib was a feeding trough. He grew up as the child of a carpenter in a small town. And throughout his life and ministry, he was a model of humility. Listen to what John says in his gospel, uh, chapter 1, beginning at verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. And then in the book of Philippians, Paul is. uh, He's exhorting us to live a life of humility, and he looks at Jesus as our model, as our template. And here's what he says in uh, chapter two. 
beginning at verse 5. Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, the people were expecting an earthly king with all the trappings of royalty. Someone who would throw off the Romans and restore peace and prosperity. They had a picture in their minds of what they thought the Savior would look like. And they missed him when he came. He was walking and talking and preaching right in their midst. And they missed him. And that's why it's so important for us to see Jesus through the eyes of Scripture. Not what you think. Not what you want, not what you assume, but what the Word of God says. I want you to see the biblical Jesus. He didn't come as a king. No, he came as a servant, humbling himself and faithfully fulfilling the Father's plan. And as he did that, he faced opposition. Look at what else Isaiah says in chapter 3, he was despised. He was rejected. Throughout his ministry, he was a man of sorrows and grief. Think about what the Gospels tell us. If you look at Luke's Gospel in the fourth chapter, uh, Luke tells us that Jesus began his earthly ministry in Nazareth, which was his hometown. And after he read the scripture and preached, the people rose up and they drove him out of town and they wanted to throw him off a cliff. John tells us in chapter six of his gospel that Jesus was handing out bread and fish. And as he was feeding them, there were thousands In the crowd. But when he said that he was the bread of life and the only way to heaven, the crowds disappeared. He was despised by the Pharisees. He was despised by the Sadducees. And the leaders not only opposed his preaching, they actually plotted To have him killed. And when he was betrayed. It wasn't by one of his enemies. It was by a friend. One of his own disciples. Jesus. Knew. The grief. And sorrow. Of betrayal. He knew the grief. And sorrow. Of a night of prayer. So intense. That he sweat blood. He knew the grief and sorrow of a kangaroo court. He knew the grief and sorrow of being whipped and beaten 
by the Romans and having to carry his own cross on his back. Jesus walked through the streets of Jerusalem. He was exhausted. He was bruised and bleeding. And then he climbed up the hill to Calvary. And there he was nailed to a cross. And Isaiah zooms in on this scene. He wants us to see the pain and the reality of the cross. The cross was terrible and it was agonizing. But through it all, God was working his plan. So we've seen the coming of Christ. And now I want us to see the cross of Christ, the cross of Christ. And that's in verses four, five and six. Read along with me. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah doesn't shy away from the cross. It's cruel and it's bloody, I know. But he wants us to see exactly what Jesus endured for us. Isaiah says he was pierced. Can you see the crown of thorns being shoved onto Jesus' head? Can you see the Roman soldier with a hammer in his hand pounding the nails into his hands and feet? Can you see the spear being thrust into his side? He was pierced. And Isaiah says he was wounded. The Gospels tell us that he was blindfolded and beaten by the guards after he was arrested in the garden. And then he was beaten again after he was convicted. And then they turned him over to the Romans and they whipped him. And the whip that they used was called a cat of nine tails. It had small pieces of bone and metal tied to it. And it was meant to rip and tear flesh. And then to add insult to injury, he was forced to carry his cross. Isaiah says he was crushed. Can you imagine Jesus carrying this heavy cross on his back, being crushed under its weight, having it tear at the open wounds on his back every time he tripped and fell. And then finally, he was nailed to the cross. And as he hung there on the cross, the weight of his own body 
crushed his heart and his lungs. And every breath became harder and harder until he breathed his last. He was crushed. But against the backdrop of all of this pain and cruelty, we see the love of God and the plan of God. And Isaiah wants us to know the Savior willingly endured this suffering for you and me. Verse 4 says, He carried our griefs and our sorrows. It looked like He was being punished for His own crimes. But verse 5 lets us see the truth. He was pierced for our sins. He was crushed for our sins. The nails and the spear and the crown of thorns, it was all because He was carrying our sins. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Scholars call this the great exchange. Jesus took our coat, a dirty coat of sin, and He gave us His coat in its place. A coat of perfect obedience to the will of God. A coat of pure white. And Isaiah helps us to see that. Look again with me at uh, verse 5. Here's what he says. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Chastisement and peace. Jesus bore the chastening. Jesus bore the punishment so we could have peace with God. He paid our sin debt so we could enjoy God's love and forgiveness. He received punishment. We received peace. And then Isaiah says, with his wounds, we are healed. Wounds and healing. Jesus endured the full horror of the cross. He took the stripes and the cuts and the bruises. He endured all the pain and the suffering. And we were made right with God. He endured the pain. We received right standing before God. He received wounds. We received healing. And then in verse 6, you and I finally show up. Put your finger on verse 6. Here's what Isaiah says. All we like sheep have gone astray. We're the sheep. And we've gone astray. Every one of us has departed. We've turned away from God's ways. And we've charted a path of our own. We're wayward. We're lost. That sounds like gospel stuff, right? 
Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All have sinned. And Isaiah closes out verse 6 by saying that God the Father took all of that sin and he laid it on Jesus. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Hebrew is pagah, and it can actually be translated to mean striking or attacking. And the New English translation actually ends the verse like this. The Lord caused the sin of all of us to attack him. The point is that that he took the full weight of our sin and he suffered the full and just punishment for it. He paid sin's price. And that price wasn't just the pain and the cruelty and the humiliation of the cross. It ended in death. So we began with the coming of Christ, then the cross of Christ, and, and now I want us to see the death of Christ. The death of Christ. Verses 7, 8, and 9. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. I think verse 7 is a really important verse in this text. You know, was the, the story of Jesus a tragedy? Was it just a story of the strong winning out over the weak? The, the Jewish leaders joined up with the Romans so they could get rid of a troublemaking preacher. Is that the, the takeaway? No, no. Jesus endured the cross Willingly, Jesus accepted the cross. Look at what Isaiah says. Like like a lamb being led to the slaughter, he never objected. He never resisted. He was fully surrendered to the Father's will. Turn with me to John's Gospel, chapter 10. Uh, This is where Jesus is preaching and he's uh, telling them that he is the good shepherd. But look at what that means. He'll lay down his life for the sheep. John chapter 10, beginning at verse 17. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up. And then in Luke chapter 22, 
Jesus is with his disciples in the garden and he knows the cross is only a few hours away. And Luke records for us part of the prayer he prays, beginning in verse 41. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. What's he saying to the father? I submit. I submit to the humiliation. I submit to the abuse. I submit to the pain and the suffering of the cross. Father, I submit to your will. So he endured the cross willingly. He endured the cross obediently. He endured the cross faithfully. Can you imagine it? Six hours on the cross. His body racked with pain. His breaths getting shorter and shorter until finally he cried out, It is finished. And then he died. Isaiah sees it. Jesus, the Savior, Jesus, the promised one, dies a real death on a real cross. Look at verse 8. It says he was taken away. He was stricken. He was cut off from the land of the living. Why is that important? Well, in the early days of the church, there were heretics who said that Jesus came, but he didn't have a real body. He was more like a phantom or a fancy hologram. But the Bible says he was fully God and fully man. The Bible says he took on flesh. He was the new and better Adam. And that means he was a living Breathing man. And on the cross, he died. He really died. And he was really buried. Look for a minute at, uh, at verse 9. You know, they, they gave Jesus the most dishonorable kind of death imaginable. And then they expected him to be buried dishonorably. They, they expected him to be buried with the wicked. But I've always liked this uh, little uh, verse of of Paul's. It's in uh, Romans 13. Honor to whom honor is due. Here's Jesus, who was absolutely faithful and absolutely obedient by giving up his life on the cross. And God honored him. He honored him with a rich man's Tomb. Look at uh, Matthew chapter 27. Beginning at verse 57, you probably remember this from uh, uh, your Easter readings. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud 
and laid it in his own tomb, which he had cut into the rock. So just as Isaiah said, Jesus was buried honorably in a rich man's tomb. Still looking at verse 9. At the end of that verse, Isaiah wants to make sure we understand that Jesus was the sinless one. Here's what he says. He had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. He did nothing wrong and he said nothing that was false. He was an innocent man in the eyes of the law and in the eyes of God. And that's why he and he alone could serve as our substitute. And that's what we see in First Peter chapter 2, beginning at verse 22. A wonderful passage. <clears throat> he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Peter, he's drawing from this same passage and he's connecting the dots for us. And he's telling us Jesus literally fulfilled Isaiah 53. Jesus suffered. Jesus died on the cross and his body was placed in a tomb. But thank God that's not the end of the story. Isaiah wants us to see that in all of this, all of this, Jesus was victorious. So let's look together at the victory of Christ. The victory of Christ. Verses 10, 11, and 12. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Look, nothing that happened leading up to the cross and the tomb took God by surprise. Isaiah says that all of it was the will of God. Yet it was the will of God to crush him. He has put him to grief. Listen to uh, Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 22. Uh, this passage comes from uh, the day of Pentecost. And so we have Peter preaching the first gospel message. And this is what he uh, shares with the crowd. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, 
a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God was working his plan. The definite plan of God took Jesus to face false charges before the Jews and the Romans. The definite plan of God took Jesus down the Via Dolorosa and up the hill to Calvary. The definite plan of God put Jesus on that cross. The cross wasn't a tragedy. It was God's idea. And verse 10 shows us his soul makes an offering for guilt. What's he saying? God was using the death of Jesus, Jesus the Savior, to be a sin offering. It's the exact same word that's used in Leviticus 5 when God was explaining to the Israelites what the offerings were for. In the Old Testament, you would take a a lamb without blemish and you would offer it as a sacrifice for sin. But guess what? It was temporary. You had to keep coming back again and again and again to make your offerings. And God says, that little lamb that you're offering, it's a picture. It's a shadow of what I'm going to do. I'm sending the sinless, spotless Son of God to deal with sin once and for all. The perfect for the imperfect. The sinless one for sinners like you and me. Listen to Hebrews chapter 10, beginning at verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made his footstool. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who were being sanctified. See, all of this should have excited the hearts of God's people, but they were so concerned about the Romans that they were looking for a political savior instead of a spiritual savior. But the kingdom of God wasn't about overthrowing the Romans. It was about something bigger. It was about overthrowing death and hell and sin forever. It was about saving the lost. It was about the love of God reaching out to sinners and making it possible for us to know the love of God and the forgiveness of God. And with that in mind, I'm going to close out by looking at three hallelujahs. Okay, three things that Isaiah says here in these last verses that probably should make us stand up and shout hallelujah. Here's the first one. The father was satisfied. Check out verse 11. 
So Isaiah 53, 11. It says he shall see and be satisfied. So Jesus died on the cross as a sin offering, a guilt offering for mankind. And Isaiah tells us the father saw and he was satisfied. The father accepted the sacrificial work of his son. And that's good news because it means that when you and I receive Jesus as our savior, he's paid the full debt. His death on the cross wasn't partial payment. Right? 10% down and pay the rest later. No. Jesus paid it all, just like the old hymn says. He took the full punishment. He bore the full wrath of God for our sins. And that's why the Bible says that the gospel is the free gift of God. Salvation is free because it's been paid for. The blood of Jesus has paid for your salvation. That's our first hallelujah. Here's the second one. Jesus rose from the dead. Look at uh, verse 10. Jump back to verse 10 with me. Here's what the prophet says. He shall prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Did Jesus die a real death? Yes. Was he buried in a real grave? Yes. But three days later, the grave came up empty. Jesus rose from the dead. Isaiah 53 isn't a lament over how badly Jesus was treated or how sad it was that he had to die. It's a victory song. Jesus willingly submitted to the Father's plan. He did everything the Father gave him to do, including dying on the cross And God gave him victory. God gave him victory over death. And because he defeated death, you and I can too. Those who come to Jesus have the promise of eternal life. Listen, death doesn't have any claim on us anymore. Jesus won the victory. Third hallelujah. Jesus sees his offspring. Look at verse 10 and put your finger right there. If you've been saved, you're in this verse too. Isaiah says, he shall see his offspring. That's us. Every man, woman, boy or girl that's come to faith through Jesus. If you're saved today, you are one of his offspring. That's why he went to the cross. And when he went to the garden, do you remember in John 17 when he prays the high priestly prayer? He he looks down the, the tunnel of time and he sees you and me and he prays for us. He prays for every single man, woman, boy and girl that will ever come to faith in him. He prays for us. And I believe that when he died on the cross, we were on his heart and mind in that moment. But that's still not everything. Jesus died. He rose again. He's got victory. But look at what else the prophet says in verse 12. Uh, There's an old saying. You may have heard it. To the victor go the spoils. Right? Well, Jesus won the victory. Jesus defeated sin and hell and death. And the Father has given him the spoils. He is exalted. 
He has a name that's synonymous with power and authority. And he reigns from heaven at the Father's right hand. He is the all-powerful one. And the wonderful thing is that Jesus shares those spoils with us. Look at verse 12. Look at what Isaiah says. He will divide the spoils with the strong. Now, turn over to Ephesians, the New Testament book of Ephesians. I want you to see how this all ties together. Uh, Ephesians, a great book. Chapter 1, an amazing uh, look at the spiritual blessings that every believer has. So think of it this way. Jesus has defeated death. He's completed his work on the cross. He's given authority now to rule and reign over creation. And then we we tie back into Ephesians chapter 1. And now he says, I'm going to share these spiritual blessings with my children. I'm going to bless them with part of this, uh, part of the spoils that I've won in this victory. And I want you to go home uh, this afternoon and I want you to read Ephesians chapter 1. That's your homework. I'll check up on you. I'll come knocking at your door. But, but Paul lists these for us. I'm going to hit the highlights though so you, you get a flavor for what we're talking about. He says, we've been adopted. We've been adopted into the family of God. Can you imagine? We were the enemies of God. And now we're part of the family. We're sitting at the table. We've got the promise of a dwelling and an eternal life with Him. We've been forgiven for every sin, every wrong we've ever committed. We stand forgiven at the foot of the cross. We have God's grace poured out into our lives day by day, moment by moment, overflowing grace from God. We have godly wisdom and understanding. As we go through our life, we don't have to stumble and bumble about the choices we make. We have this uh, beautiful inheritance of godly wisdom and a godly book to get it from. We have intimacy with God. Can you imagine the, the one and only God, the living God who created everything and everyone says, I want to have a personal, intimate relationship with you. I want to spend time with you. I want to get to know you and I want you to get to know me. I want us to spend time together. Intimacy with God. And we have an inheritance. The scripture we read at the beginning, again, I didn't have any part in choosing that, but it talked about an inheritance, didn't it? An inheritance from God. We have an inheritance won by Jesus. And we have the Holy Spirit within us who seals us and guarantees our inheritance until we get to heaven and we see God face to face. And those are the spoils. That's what Jesus is sharing with every born-again believer in this room and all around the world. And isn't that worthy of a hallelujah? (laughs) All right. I'll, I'll close by just asking this question. Where are you in this text of Isaiah 53? How many times did you see yourself in the text? Maybe you only showed up one time. Maybe it was verse 6. You're a sheep. You're a lost sheep. 
Well, I've got good news for you. Jesus came to save the lost sheep. You've seen all that Jesus did for you. You've seen the agony of the cross. Those were your sins he was carrying. Will you agree that you're a sinner? Will you agree that there's nothing you can do to save yourself? That's Jesus. Only Jesus can do that. And will you turn away from your sins? And will you turn today to Jesus? He's waiting for you. Maybe you saw yourself two times. You were a lost sheep, but you came to Jesus and he saved you. And now, thank God, you're one of his offspring. Can I have you meditate on two things in the days and weeks ahead? Think about what Jesus did to make your salvation possible. Just meditate on the cross. His body was broken for you. And his blood was spilt for you. Remember that and give thanks. And then think about what Jesus has won for you. Even right now, right here, you're enjoying the blessings of his victory. Spiritual blessings that he's poured out on you from heaven. That's part of your inheritance. And you'll see the rest of your inheritance when this life is over. And you see your Savior with your own eyes. And you spend eternity together. Praise God. Are you looking forward to that day? Would you bow with me? God, I thank you for the cross. I thank you for Jesus and his willingness to endure all of the wounding and the cutting and the hurting, God, for my sins. I know, God, when I look at the cross, when I see his spilt blood on the cross, I know that that's for my sins. He carried my wrongs, my crimes, my sins to the cross with him. And he did everything that was necessary so that I could be made right with God. I thank you, Jesus, for the cross and for all that you did on the cross. And I thank you for the victory that you won, Jesus, when you rose again and you had victory over death and sin and hell. And God, I pray that each one of us would celebrate that victory and the blessings that you've poured into our lives. And Jesus, in the quiet of this moment, I pray that you would speak to hearts. If there are any in the room, God, who don't know you, they're lost sheep. I pray that you would stir their hearts, God, to come to salvation today. God, if there are any among us who know you, but they've backslidden, God, they've they've begun to, to veer away. God, draw them back. Just speak to their hearts, God, and remind them of all you did and of the great victory and the spoils that we have, God, in this life. We love you, God, and we pray that you would have the liberty now to speak and to work in our midst. We pray this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.